Hello, everybody. I'm Peter Giuliano, and you're listening to the RICO Podcast, a special episode of the SCA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee. On the RICO Podcast, we'll be sharing talks and discussions from RICO Symposium, SCA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. We'll also be having special interviews with the speakers themselves, learning more about their perspectives and innovations. Check out the show notes for links to our RICO Symposium YouTube channel, where you can find videos of our RICO talks, and to ricosymposium.org for the latest on our conferences and fellowships. This episode of the RICO Podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all the natural and delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy cold brew systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brew concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at toddycafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. And now on to the episode. We have a little tradition at Rico when SEA Chief Executive Officer Rick Reinhardt gives an annual talk on the state of specialty coffee. We've given that talk a number of names over the years, like Rick's Fireside Chat and Rick's Doom and Gloom Warning, but it's become one of the most anticipated and valuable parts of our conference. Rick always brings together a variety of indicators, like economic data, industry insights, and years' worth of experience and firsthand knowledge, and he weaves all of it together in a powerful narrative on the risks threatening our industry and possible solutions to them. This year is no different. Rick's talk is an amazing economics lesson and call to action for our industry. Let's listen. Hi, everybody. I I don't know why any of you look forward to this, by the way, because um, every year I come here and I do the same thing and say... uh, Listen, folks, things are bad and getting worse. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what is wrong with you that you've come back 10 times to hear that message. So. <clears throat> and unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly, I'm going to do it again. Uh, actually, surprisingly, I, there we go. That's the one I wanted. <clears throat> so this is our 10th anniversary show, so I'm, I'm going back and dragging out some of the stuff from the archives. Um, this was my favorite sort of lead into how bad things are. Um, and I don't know if you read the newspapers or if you get a, a news feed or if you um, have any contact with human beings anywhere on earth, you've probably got this sort of thing. And <clears throat> it's pretty easy to settle into this. We're doomed. Let's have a cup of coffee or better yet, a glass of wine and just give up. But we're not going to. We're all here. We're going to talk about all the things that you already heard here, which is, yeah, there's a ton of problems. And there are some solutions, and many of those solutions can and should start right here. So we're going to talk about that. But I'm also going to take you through the problems again. You just saw lots of views of the problems that you probably already know. I'm going to show you a couple that I've showed you in the past. And we're going to look at them. But then I'm going to ask you to stand over here and look at them just a little bit differently and see if that doesn't inform some of our solutions. So here's one that you've seen already in a couple presentations here, and it's been talked about, consolidation and production. I think we showed this slide last year or two years ago. Uh, It it looks at the consolidation and production on the production side. And I just heard uh, Andrea reference that just Brazil and Vietnam together are producing 57, 58% of the world's uh, coffee now. So more than half of the world's coffee comes from two countries. So 
That's a consolidation risk. But think about this one. Five countries produce 75% of the world's coffee. That's a risk. If we lose one of those countries, if, you know, I know this never happens, but if there was a weather event, we could lose a bunch of coffee. Let's think about that as we go forward. Here's another one I've shown you in the past. You're all in this room, and this is the Specialty Coffee Association. And uh, you've seen variations of this, but what this slide is, this is another slide from uh, last year, which, to which I owe a lot of gratitude to Mr. Tom Koppel. But this is looking at the increase in production over years by coffee type. We're looking at washed Arabica, natural Arabicas, and Robusta, and then what the projection for the future looks like. All right, and since we're all here in this room talking about specialty coffee, because this is the Specialty Coffee Association, I like to think of washed Arabica not as the only specialty coffee, but as a proxy for specialty coffee, because most of us, when we got into specialty coffee, whether as a producer or a consumer of it, or a roaster in between, that's what we were talking about in specialty coffee. We were talking about phenomenally clean, clear, crisp, engaging, washed coffees. Now, I'm not, for all you lovers of naturals out there, either as producers or as consumers, this is no slight on the naturals. I'm using this just as a proxy for specialty coffee. And look where we're going here. We haven't had an actual increase in the production of washed Arabica since, actually since about 1982. So just between 35 and 40 million bags is our production. That's it, that's our whole supply. And you've heard everybody up here talking about the growth in consumption, and the driver for growth in consumption is specialty. And yet, we don't seem to have any more specialty than we used to. That's a, a cause for concern. Then there's this. I mean, nobody really. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you're worried. Uh, I am. I'm not sure that we can resolve this here in this room, although I would be remiss if I didn't say all of us have some part to play in resolving this and should take that personal responsibility when we can. Uh, I don't know, I'm doing a very good job and I hope some of you are doing better than I am, but all of us have a little obligation here. But it's undoubtedly going to impact coffee production. There's no question it's already impacting coffee production. And we've seen some moments where it's been very, very frightening. You guys may remember a little drought problem in Brazil a couple of years ago. Um, that's definitely related to this idea of a, uh, a warming planet, a global climate change scenario. And it's not going to go away, and it's going to happen again. And if we think about that 57% in two countries or 75% in five countries, and we think about the possibility of another drought in Brazil, where will that coffee come from? I want to put this up here. This is from our friends at the ICO. And, um, the ICO uh, has produced coffee data and statistics over the years. And for those of you who are professionally engaged in trading coffee, you may have some skepticism about those statistics. Um, but I would say that at this exact moment in time, that organization has done a very good job of revisiting how they gather and analyze data. And they've started to, to course correct so that what they have to say and what they think about supply and demand in coffee is much more reflective of what we, as an industry, and what the larger markets think about it. And so one of the things you might note here is if you look up there under production for 2017, this number might look a little different than the number you're used to seeing. That number is almost 160 million bags for last year's production. 
And if you look at consumption, it's just about, in parallel there, also just about 150, uh, 160 million bags of consumption. Now, if you're not watching the numbers all the time, maybe that's not as meaningful to you as it is to me, but think about that for a minute. And then look at the very bottom where it says balance. It tells us in 14 and 15 we had deficit years, but in 16 and 17 we actually had surplus years. We had more coffee than we needed to consume. And they've gone back and they've looked at their data. They're back about 10 years now. They're going back another 10 years, and they're going to recast some of this data. And suddenly, market performance is going to make a little more sense to us. We're like, wow, how are we in a $1.16 market today if there's not enough coffee around? Well, actually, there is enough coffee around right now. It may not be coffee that you want to drink, by the way. Uh, but there is coffee with a small C out there. I want to show you something else. This, you've seen a couple of these trend lines on consumption forecasts, and they've been painted different ways. I put this slide up in 2012. You can tell by the starting date there. That was the day I had the information. And it looked like consumption in 2012, about 138 million bags or thereabouts. And then we give you three scenarios here that says, OK, if we, if we keep growing at a pretty good clip, at the low clip of 1.5% annual compounded growth, this is what our needs will be. If we grow at, uh, at uh, 2%, the, the orange line, that's what our needs will be. And if we grow at uh, a high rate, the gray line, 2.5%, that's what our needs will be. And I ask you to look at the intersection of uh, the gray line in 2017. That's that space right between 16 and 18. And if you could read that, I'm, and if your eyes are, I have a big vision of this so I can see it here. Uh, and I was supposed to memorize this, but I didn't. But it looks like about 148 million bags of consumption for 17. What did we just look at here? Consumption 17? 158 million bags. That's a 10 million bag difference between what I thought and told all of you in 2012, because that was the best data available to me at that moment in time. That's a 10 million bag difference. So let's look again. We take that same growth curve, and we start uh, at about 160 million bags of consumption in 17. I actually went back and went to 157 million bags of consumption in 16. And we plot that out again. Let's look at what happens to this. By 2032, at a, at a moderate growth rate, we need 200 million bags of coffee. That's at a moderate growth rate. Just for those of you who like to play math tricks, that's 25% more coffee than we have produced today. It's a 25% increase at a moderate growth pace, and not by 2050, by 2032. And for those of you who are closer to 60 than 50, I can tell you that the concept of 14 years uh, is like about that long. Uh, as my, uh, my grandmother used to remind me, the, uh, the days are long and the years are short as you get out to the other end of the, of the bell curve there. So if we look at the sort of peak consumption idea, by 2032, we need 235 million bags of coffee, 75 million bags, 50% more coffee than we're producing today. And we need to do it on an ever-decreasing landmass of suitable land currently under cultivation with anything. If we're going to do it by cutting down virgin forest, we're going to create even more problems than the ones we already have. So think about these numbers for a minute. Somewhere between 40 and 75 million bags of new production 
in the next 14 years. That's kind of scary. Here's the part where I want to, to look at things from a slightly different perspective. Where is this coffee going to come from? You may have seen this, uh, this kind of thing before. This is the um, world's coffee production for selected, uh, for selected countries, and it's stated in bags per hectare. Um, these are FAO numbers. Uh, you can move them around, and, and they're a, a rolling average of a couple of years here. Brazil comes in really at about 25, although all my Brazilian friends out there, maybe 30, but a lot of production. Brazil does a great job of producing coffee, a lot of coffee on a relatively small amount of land. And of course, we can see the result, lots of Brazilian coffee out there. And Vietnam really produces a ton of coffee, 40 plus, million bag, or 40 plus bags per hectare. That's a lot of coffee per hectare. And so we tend to think in this way, if we're going to need 40 million more bags, there's a couple of things we can do. We can make more hectares of coffee, which is not a good idea um, for a variety of reasons and may not be possible. Or we can take the laggards in production and help them produce more coffee per hectare, which sounds like, oh, well, that's how we should do it. Let's just do that. But I mean, why haven't we done that? Because it's not easy. It's not easy to, to increase that production. It's expensive to increase that production. And my friends in Brazil tell me, by the way, said, oh, we could, we could easily take the national average to 40 bags per hectare. But the law of diminishing returns says the additional cost necessary to put in more inputs and more husbandry and more effort to get to 40 bags per hectare doesn't pay off in the marketplace. So 25 bags a hectare is sort of our sweet spot for economic equilibrium. Let's take a different look. This is the same, country, the same set of countries, and we're looking at them through a different lens. This is, the blue line is still bags uh, per hectare. But this one looks at bags per household. How many bags does a household of coffee farmers produce? And this one is super important for a whole bunch of reasons. It gives us a new lens to look at what the challenge is and where the opportunities are. But it also reminds us of something very important. In the end of the day, coffee production doesn't need to feed a hectare. Coffee production needs to feed a family. And our task is to figure out how do we make sure that a coffee farmer, a coffee household, can survive on that production of, of coffee. So how many bags per household can we produce here? And you look at the numbers, and again, the, it, unsurprisingly, Vietnam is over there uh, at, the, uh, at the 55 bags per household range. Down at the low end, we see Ethiopia and Uganda. Uganda's uh, in at about two and a half bags per household. Not super surprisingly, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and in general, Central America, where farmers are still relatively wealthy with relatively substantive land holdings, we're in that 40 to 45 bag, bags per household range. It's still not enough, in general, to feed a household, but it's closer, and it's a significant component of a whole uh, range of activities, both on-farm and off-farm, that can keep a farmer and his family or her family eating and surviving and hopefully someday thriving. But that's a much different perspective, huh? Bags per household. And that's the one that I would encourage you to take away from here today when you start those conversations about what to do about it. By the way, here's this at scale. You may have noticed if you look at that last slide that Brazil 
uh, went off the top of the chart. Here's Brazil, really, 204 bags per household. You wonder why that's 35% of the world's coffee production is coming out of Brazil. At 204 bags per household, the Brazilian farmer is actually in business. This is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I'm not actually very good at math uh, when, you get out, when you get down to a couple of decimal points. But if you just want big, wide swaths at math, it's what I like to call back of the cocktail napkin math. It's one of my favorite things to do. You know, when you get plus or minus, you know, 40%, it's a pretty accurate way to, to it's worked for balancing my household budget for years, which is why my wife does it now. So let's look at a couple scenarios here. Here's Colombia. If Colombia produces 18 bags of 132 pounds each per household, that's 2,376 pounds of coffee per Colombian coffee household. And we'll multiply that by $1.40. This is a, a very generous price based on the average, the moving average for Colombian miles last year. Very generous price. That yields about $3,326 for that household. Unfortunately, Colombian coffee firm gets about 80% of the realized price at the farm gate level. Uh, not the worst, not the best. That's about $2,661. Again, this is back the cocktail napkin math, so don't, don't go running out and basing your future on this. But here's a, here's a perspective builder for you. This is the legal minimum wage in Colombia, annualized, $3,240. And the average household can expect to get from coffee, if everything goes really well, at $1.40, by the way, $2,661. If you really like that math, you're going to love this. Here's Mexico. Their bags are also 132 pounds. You get 11 per household, 1,452 pounds of coffee. You take that. Give them, again, very generously $1.40 a pound. $2,032 for that household. Rounded it up because that's the kind of guy I am. Mexican smallholder farmers, again, very generously might get 60% of the final price at the farm gate. Maybe. $1,220 for that household. Annualized minimum wage in Mexico, $1,788. $568 gap between minimum wage, and let's you know, take the concept of minimum wage for a moment, for those of you who uh, live anywhere where there is a minimum wage, and think about feeding your household on your minimum wage. How about Uganda? 132 pounds again, two and a half bags per household, 330 pounds of coffee. In Uganda, a good portion of that coffee is Robusta, so I split this down into a, a little weighted average between Robusta and Arabica, about a dollar a pound, $330. Something I might add here, by the way, all these numbers are gross revenue numbers. They are assuming Zero costs. Free labor, free land, free fertilizer, free everything. God just sends the sunshine, and the rest is done. $330. This is another generous estimate, the Ugandan coffee farmer getting 70% of the final price at the farm gate. I would suggest that that's probably not true, but I 
was feeling remarkably generous when I put these numbers on the back of the cocktail napkin, $231 a year in income. Uganda has a minimum wage. Uh, they haven't adjusted it since 1984, so for all intents and purposes, there is no minimum wage in Uganda. It's, uh, I think it's 6,000 shillings, which is like a dollar. So annualized, so it's not, it's not relevant. But if we took a look at, the, at uh, the UN's living wage studies, it suggests $267 is the living wage for an individual household in Uganda. If everything goes right and they have all free costs, $231 yield from their coffee. How about Brazil? 204 bags per household. 26,928 pounds of coffee. We're going to give them a dollar twenty. That again is mostly looking at uh, the production of natural arabica. There's there is some, uh, obviously some conlon, some robusta production in Brazil. Most of that's consumed internally. And it's I'm not sure it's it's the right price to look at. So we'll say a dollar twenty, which is again a pretty good look at the moving average for uh, Brazilian naturals uh, over the last couple of years, or the last year rather. So a dollar twenty a pound, thirty two thousand three hundred fourteen dollars per household there. 90% of the final price at the farm gate, and in many cases higher. Brazil delivers more dollars, uh, more efficiently into the farmer's hands than any other country, although Vietnam's right there on their heels. This means $29,000 to the average Brazilian farm household versus a minimum wage of $3,360. So this session's about economics in the state and future, especially coffee. Where do you think your coffee's coming from in the future? I think the Brazilian farmer who, again, has costs here, this is a cost-free example, but even with costs, even if they only yielded about 15% net on that, they'd still be making more than the minimum wage. This is our future if we're not thoughtful about our price value ideas. So what do we do about this? This, this whole thing today is about what are we going to attack and how are we going to attack it. Here's a couple of suggestions for you. One is we can make fewer people dependent on coffee. Those numbers I showed you, you know, we kick a lot of numbers around about how many farmers there are out there, but those numbers that I showed you were based on 10 million farming households. 10 million farming households. And I think that's the best number I've seen in the last decade in terms of its accuracy. Households may range from four to two and a half to say four and a half, so 25 million to 45 million people involved in that household activity, not sure how much time is spent by the primary person engaged in the activity, but 10 million households. If we can have fewer households dependent on coffee, that's a larger per household income that's possible, and that needs to happen. We need a better distribution. 40% or 50% price at the farm gate is not functioning. Nobody gets to survive on that. Even if you pay twice as much, you can't overcome a 40% share at the farm gate. Paying more for coffee, which is critical if we are going to build a realistic price-value relationship, it's critical, but insufficient. It is not enough alone. So we've got to look at that distribution across the value chain, and there's a lot of ways to do that. 
Disruptive technology will help us with that. Things like blockchain trading and all kinds of other exciting stuff that's happening out there will likely make the whole value chain more efficient. We may change from what Phyllis noted was a colonial system designed to transfer wealth from the very poor to the very wealthy. That system will change. We're talking to each other. We see each other on Facebook and Skype and Instagram and whatever else is out there that I don't know about yet. Twitter, I guess, that's one. Uh, and may never know about. But anyway, we see each other and we know how things work in the world, so that's changing our concepts. And it will change how our value chain operates ultimately. Gotta happen. And then we've gotta increase value. You heard uh, Andrea talk about that. We're already changing the equation. People are liking coffee more and paying more for coffee and the number of consumers is growing. That's increasing value. It's gotta happen. And we have an opportunity to influence that. We value coffee as individuals we need to figure out how to help everybody else value coffee. And it's doable. Breaking it down a little bit, here's my recommendations. And listen, I don't own a farm. I don't live in a producing country. I don't buy coffee. I don't sell coffee. I don't roast coffee. I'm just a guy with a big mouth and a microphone standing up in here in front of you. But here's what I think, if any of you care. Producing country success is going to be dependent on these three things. And I can't say it often enough. Strong institutions are critical. And in a day and age where all institutions are challenged, where we're generally skeptical about institutions, we need to exercise caution here. Institutions represent the aggregation of people's voices. I get to have a big voice because I've got a microphone and a room full of people. A farmer doesn't get to have that voice. But if we can aggregate farmers, if we can put amplifying uh, effects in that institutions bring, then farmers too can have a big voice in this. Strong internal consumption, we've heard it said in every panel so far, domestic consumption is key in the producing country environment. If we can get people drinking coffee, it relieves lots of stress from volatile markets. It takes some of the stress off of uh, currency fluctuations. It gives you an easy road to a marketplace. That's critical. And then this one, I keep telling people about this, destination marketing. How many coffee farmers in the world today quite literally produce coffee and then wait by the side of the road for a buyer to come by and buy their coffee. In what world do we operate that way in our businesses? We identify a market for our business. We create a product that satisfies a demand in that marketplace. And then we take the product to market. The best, most sophisticated, highly resourced coffee farmers in the world do exactly that. Take a little trip to Panama sometime. Take a look at what they're doing there. There are highly resourced, highly sophisticated coffee farmers in Panama who are growing coffee for a destination customer that they've defined the year before with a price idea in mind and a value idea in mind that works for both sides of the equation. Our job, and I say our job because all of us in the room, if you're not, if your primary role in life is not coffee farmer, then our job is connecting coffee farmers with coffee consumers. And if we are not doing a good job of connecting farmers with consumers in a way that creates an incentive for farmers to produce and in a way that creates incentive for consumers to consume, then we are failing. If we don't do that, we are failing. And I don't want to fail. 
From an industry perspective, what do we got to do? Again, increase value. We love this stuff. How many of you wonder what the price of a cup of coffee is when you go out? Probably none of you because you're out on your way to get a great cup of coffee. And when you're not on your way to get a great cup of coffee, you're out to get a caffeine fix first thing in the morning. And believe me, you don't give a shit what it costs then either. <laughs> we need to have a long-term outlook. I just heard Teddy up here say something that's profound and incredibly brave to say. But as a trader, he cares more about tomorrow than he does about five years from now because he has to. That is his role in our value chain, is to care about what the price of coffee is going to be tomorrow. We can't afford that. We have to think about coffee next year and five years from now and 10 years from now and 15 and 20 years from now. And then, Liam, I saw you out there. Where are you? We've got to collaborate relentlessly, or as Liam Brody once said, pathologically, like it's a disease, we need to collaborate. We've got to be in rooms like this one, or in businesses where we talk to each other, or in environments, or working with institutions where our collaboration is relentless. None of us, none of us will solve this problem alone. Not one company, not one person, not one country. But together, we can make a difference. So here's my last slide from the past. Folks, we have this product that has this unique place in the human experience. I don't get it. I've talked to people about this. This is meaningful to me personally. Why do we care about coffee? I mean, you're all here, and you threw good money and good time and good energy to come here and talk about coffee. And I suppose almost all of you have careers in coffee, maybe for decades. Hardly any of you were born into coffee. Most of you got here somehow. We all drink coffee, and we're, we're thrilled because all these people around us drink coffee. Humans like coffee. When you see someone with a cup of coffee in their hand, you view them as a warmer, friendlier, better person. It's true. When you hold a cup of coffee in your hand, you view yourself as a warmer, friendlier, better person. This is a non-nutritive food product that occupies a lot of space that we don't inherently like. Give coffee to your kids sometimes. Gee, what are you doing drinking this stuff? Right? It's displacing food crops to some degree or another. There's a tremendous amount of global trade in it. It's fraught with problems. It's a mild psychotropic, but it's not very good. I mean, there's better ways to get high. I see a couple of you out there who have used those today. Seattle, man, it's, a, it's legal here. Uh, but why do we care about coffee? Because it occupies this very unique space in our psyche. It allows us to connect with other humans in unique and magical and maybe even mystical ways. And I'd love to know why, but it's enough for me to know right now that it happens. So this whole thing, today, tomorrow, the rest of the week here, and I hope for those of you who have a career in coffee in front of you, the rest of your career, it's about that connection. It's about bringing people together. And ideally, our job is to bring that farmer and that consumer together in a meaningful way. Thank you. That was Rick Reinhardt at Rico Symposium this past April. Remember to check out our show notes to find a link to the YouTube video of this talk and a link to all the speaker bios on the Rico website. This has been an SCA podcast brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy. 
I'm Peter Giuliano. Thanks you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.